Welcome to The Positioning Show, where we discuss topics related to the practical application of positioning for marketing, sales, and product teams. I'm April Dunford, a consultant, author, and the world's leading expert on positioning for B2B technology companies. Oh my God, it's episode one. Look at you, early adopter. No, seriously. Thank you for joining me on episode one of The Positioning Show. I am so happy to have you here. I thought what would be a good thing for us to start with on episode one would be to tackle a question I get asked a lot when I'm a guest on a podcast, but because I'm just a guest, we never get to actually dig into it too far. And that question is like, April, how'd you get here? Like why positioning of all the things you could focus on? Why have you decided to focus on that one thing? And so can I tell you a story? course I can. It's my podcast. I get to do whatever I want. Here's the story. I want to tell you a story about the first product I ever worked on. And it was a product that seemed to be kind of a failure. And then we repositioned it and it became wildly successful. So successful that if you added up all the money it ever made over its lifespan, it was probably around a billion dollars. And at its peak, was installed on almost every cell phone in North America. So this is the story of Watcom SQL. So here's how it goes. So I graduated from engineering and I get a job at a startup. This is back in the 90s. So we didn't even call it a startup back then. We called it a small business. (laughs) So I get this job at this startup and the startup's called Wacom. And at, at the time, they were uh, famous for doing compilers. That was their big thing. They had a C compiler, a C++ compiler, but they were looking to branch out into other products because, you know, Microsoft was uh, coming up in the compiler business and hard to compete with. So I got assigned to this product that was called Wacom SQL. And that product was originally conceived as kind of a spreadsheet on steroids. Like it was a spreadsheet that could do an SQL query. So SQL is this structured query language that you only see in the big, big enterprise databases at the time. Um, and they thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if we had something that was really easy to install, really small footprint, it, you know, you could put it on a, a PC, run it on a PC, and, but it but it did this SQL thing. So, you know, they're smart folks that came up with this idea. They did their due diligence. They went around, they talked to a lot of customers. Customers seemed to be excited about it. So they, they, they created the thing and launched it. And, and there it was. When I joined, it was probably six months old. Like it had been on in market for a while and it wasn't doing so good. So they were selling it off the website for like a hundred bucks a pop and they maybe sold a couple hundred copies. So when I came on, I get assigned to it because I'm the new girl, you know, they put me on the dud. So they put me on a bad product And my first job to go do, they said, April, you know, we want you to call the customers and find out what they're doing. Because, you know, this on-prem software, we have no idea. Are they even using it? What are they doing? And at first I thought, well, they want me to call it because they're trying to figure out how to make this product better. In reality, what they actually wanted to know was, was anybody really using it? Because we're thinking about killing it. And are they going to (laughs) cry if we kill it? (laughs) So that was my job. So my job is to go call developers. That itself was kind of hilarious because, you know, no developer ever wants to talk to a person on the phone. So at the beginning, I was very unsuccessful. No one would talk to me. But eventually I came up with this routine, which was like the, the damsel in distress routine where I call people up and I was just pathetic. Like I just got, I left them the most pathetic message. And I said, look, I'm brand new and they're going to fire me if you don't talk to me on the phone. And, and you know, and some of these folks were nice and called me back. 
So I started having conversations and the conversations I had, the first 20 conversations were exactly the same. I would get on the phone and say, hi, I'm April, call from Wacom, trying to figure out what you're doing with that Wacom SQL. And, and the person on the phone would go, yeah, we don't, we don't have that. I don't think we, like, I think we don't even have that product. I'm like, oh yeah, you do. I got a spreadsheet right here and it says right here, February 25th, you purchased it off the website, whatever. And they go, oh yeah, yeah, that thing. Yeah, no, I remember, I remember. Yeah, yeah, I bought that thing. Yeah, we messed around with it for a week or something, but you know, we couldn't figure out what to do with it. And so, we, you know, we didn't use it again. 20 calls like this, 20. So I'm thinking, hmm, no wonder we're going to kill this thing. This is bad. So, you know, I'm going through the calls. I get call number 21. So call number 21, I call, guy gets on the phone and he's like, oh my God, I love that thing. I love it. Oh, you guys are so great. You're geniuses for coming up with this thing. Everybody loves me and my company because we did this thing with your thing. And I was like, what are you doing with it? He says, well, we got these sales reps and sales reps go out to the field and they take orders and then they come back and the orders got to go into the big order system at headquarters. Well, they got laptops, which, I mean, this is the 90s, so that was kind of, you know, fancy. He says, they got laptops, but they can't take an order because the order system is on the big Oracle database at headquarters. So what they do is they just put it in like a Word document or something, but they go in and they have to re-enter it again in the order system. They're always making a mistake or they get an order wrong or they forget something. And then they got to go back and forth, back and forth. What I did with your thing is we could actually put it on a laptop unlike the Oracle database, fit on the laptop. And I wrote this little program on top where they can take orders. And then when they come in, they just plug into the Oracle database. It just automatically syncs on account, all that great SQL. I'm like, weirdo. Like, why are you doing, <laughs> why are you doing that with that thing? I thought that in my mind, I didn't say it. So I was like, okay, wrote the notes. And I didn't have the heart to tell the guy, yeah, we're thinking about killing it. Cause he was like, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. I keep making the calls. I make the next 20 calls, same thing. Nobody, nobody's using it. Nobody's doing anything. And then I get another one. And, and this guy's the same thing. I'm like, what are you doing with it? He says, well, we got these folks that go out in the field with these ruggedized tablet things to do service work. And before they couldn't update the service database, they had to do it all on paper. And then they come back to the office, update the service database. And now what they can do is we put your database on the tablet and then they can do it out in the field, come back, plug in and it automatically syncs up with the Oracle database. And I was like, oh man, here's another one. Write it down. So I make a hundred calls in the end. And out of a hundred, I get four or five of these people. So then I got to go to the exec team. I go to the exec team and I report back and I'm like, look, you know, good news, bad news situation, depending on your definition of good news and bad news. So, you know, on the one hand, if you shut this thing off, 95% of the world is not going to care. <laughs> like They don't care. They're not even using it. They don't even know they had it. But there's these other folks and they're going to be seriously disappointed. So to the credit of this company, this sparked this debate amongst the executive team. Like, what should we do? Like, we could take a run at this thing. Now think about that for a second. Like, that's not just changing the story. That's, that's changing everything. Like, if I'm going to sell a database to a whole sales team, I probably need a sales rep to do that. I probably need a different pricing model. I'm not selling them one at a time anymore. I'm selling them a hundred at a time, maybe a thousand at a time. And so the team debated it and decided, well, let's try it out. We'll take a run at it. New pricing, new positioning, new messaging, hired a sales rep to go out. Turns out the thing's pretty easy to sell. So they get selling it. Revenue starts going up to the right. Everybody's getting excited. It starts to eclipse the compiler business. People are getting excited. And at that point, uh, 
acquirers start looking at us. So we ended up getting double acquired. That's when you get acquired by somebody and then they get acquired really fast. But that's what happened. We got acquired by this company, PowerSoft, which if you're in Boston, maybe you remember who they were. And almost immediately, PowerSoft got acquired by Sybase. So now we're owned by the second biggest database company in the world and the hot one at the time. If you can, you know, again, we're talking the 90s. So now we're now we're owned by this great big database company. And this thing, everybody's really excited about it because they're database people. And so they're giving us all kinds of money and resources to go grow this business. And this thing is getting really, really big at this point. Um, in fact, uh, it, it at its peak, this product was basically the only way to make a really good mobile app was to put this thing underneath. So there were all kinds of apps out there like QuickBooks and stuff that had our database underneath it. And so the, the quote that I used to hear the sales rep say was that 90% of cell phones in North America had a MySQL database somewhere on them underneath one of these apps. At the end, which Sybase eventually got acquired by SAP, but for many years, uh, the product eventually got renamed iAnywhere. And the iAnywhere division was the growth engine of that entire business, making hundreds of millions of revenue. The point of this story is we almost killed it because we didn't know what we had. And a shift in positioning took this thing that looked like a crappy spreadsheet that nobody even wanted to use and turned it into something that was clear market leader in the mobile database space. So at that point, that's what's how I got hooked. That was it. It was like, this is like a magic trick. If we could figure out how to do this in a repeatable way, in a way that was systematic, maybe we could take practically anything that looked like it didn't work and turn it into something that did. So this became sort of an obsession of mine after this. So, uh, you know, what happened was I ended up at Sybase. My boss left. I have no, to this day, I have no idea why, but they made me the vice president of marketing. So I'm in charge of the marketing team now. Great. I have no idea what I'm doing. Like people talk about having imposter syndrome. I didn't have imposter syndrome. I was an imposter. I didn't know how to do any of this. I could, I could barely spell marketing. Like I had no business running a big marketing team whatsoever. And not only that, they were, they were giving me all kinds of products that weren't going so good and saying, Hey, maybe you know how to reposition these things just like you did with the other one. And so I thought, well, you know, I better learn how to do this. And I was convinced that the marketers would know how to do this. Like positioning seems like a pretty fundamental marketing thing. We must know how to do this. Right. And if I had gone to marketing school, maybe I would have figured that out. So I started having coffee meetings with all the smart marketers I know. And I read a bunch of books and I'm working at a big company now, Sybase. So they got a training budget. So I went and did some post-grad stuff at a bunch of universities. I took some courses at places like Northwestern University. And the thing that really struck me was that there didn't seem to be a methodology or at least a methodology that people were using. When I sat and had coffee with the vice president of marketing and said, how do you do this? Like, have you ever been in this situation? Lots of them said, oh yeah, we did that once with this product. What they were doing with those products looked a lot like what we were doing at Wacom when we repositioned Wacom SQL. We just kind of monkeyed around until we got something that worked. But I was convinced, like, how could we avoid that potential failure in the first place? Like, if we knew how to do positioning, 
we could have launched that thing properly in the first place and cut out the three, four years of the thing failing and go straight to the part where it's super successful. <laughs> and so what I couldn't believe was that we didn't seem to know how to do it. The closest I ever got to something that looked like a methodology for positioning was this thing called a positioning statement. And first time I came across that was uh, reading Jeffrey Moore's book, Crossing the Chasm. Uh, he references it there. The second time I came across it was in, in marketing school uh, and the professor came up and it was, it was positioning day. Well, hey, we're going to learn positioning. And I was like, oh boy, finally going to learn how we do this properly. And he puts up this positioning statement. Now the positioning statement, what it is, if you've never seen one before, is kind of a Mad Libs fill in the blank sort of a thing. Like, you know, we are a blank that does blank, unlike blank, blankly, blank, blank, blank. And the blanks are things like who's your competition? What's the value you can deliver that no one else can? These kinds of things, your market category, that was a blank. And so the professor puts this up on the screen and says, this is how you do it. You just fill in these blanks and then, and then you have it. And he showed a couple of examples and he said, okay, that's it. And then we're moving along now to the next topic. Now I'm sitting at the back of the room and, and I'm like, wait, wait, <laughs> what, wait, there's a blank in there and it says market category. How do we know what the best market category is? How do we know? Cause like, we had a thing and we thought it was desktop productivity software. Turned out it was way better positioned as an embeddable database for mobile devices. So how do I know it's one versus the other? So I put my hand up, you know, and the professor's up there. I put my hand up and I'm like, hey, dude, how do we know? How do we know? And I give him the whole story. And you know what he did? He gave me this like old professor bit. You know, he had his glasses on and he's adjusting his glasses and he's looking up. I'm at the back of the class. He's like, who said that? I'm like, me, me, I'm back here. Who, who, how do you know? And, and I said, I give him the story. I said, how do you know? And you know what the guy said? He looked at me and he says, trust me, April, you'll just know. And at that point I was like, oh, wow, we actually don't know how to do this. Cause that's what smart people say when they don't know. You will just know. We didn't just know we were smart people. We didn't just know that's, that's not how it's going to work. So at that point I thought, well, maybe I can figure this out. Maybe there's a way for me to figure this out. And this actually ended up being a multi-year project for me, like trying different things. Like my original idea was, uh, was that, you know, we'd solve this, like we solve an engineering problem, right? We'll break it into pieces, solve for the pieces, put the pieces together while good positioning and break it into pieces, no big deal, because we know what the pieces are. We kind of agree on that. There's, it's sort of more or less maps to the blanks of the positioning statement, which are, there's five things like competition, like who's the competitive alternative Second thing is differentiated capabilities. What do you got capabilities wise that the competitors don't have? And then there's value. Like that's what we really care about because customers don't buy you for your features. They buy you for what the features can deliver for their business. And then the next one was target customers. Like we're not trying to sell this to everybody. We're only going to sell it to folks that are really good fit for our stuff. And then the last one is market category, which is kind of like the answer to the question, what are you? But it's the context you position a product in. So market category would be, you know, am I desktop productivity software or am I a database? And so those are the five things. And that was pretty easy to get to that. The problem was like, how do you, how do you solve for the best answer for each of those five things? And that was harder. So, you know, and in particular in marketing, like one of the things we're really concerned with in marketing is value. And 
even more specific. It's not just value, it's differentiated value. Like that's the answer to the question, why pick us over anyone else? And so if you really think about differentiated value, like where does that come from? Like it, it, it comes from our differentiated capabilities, either capabilities of the products or capabilities of the company or a combination of those. But value and capabilities actually have a relationship. I can't figure out one without understanding the other. And then if I think about differentiated capabilities, they're only differentiated when I compare them to a competitor. <laughs> so these three things are all related. And then I've got, well, I've got, well, who's my target customers? My target customers are the customers are really good fit for my stuff. Well, what's my definition of a best fit customer? Well, that's a customer that really, really cares a lot about the value that only we can deliver. So those all, now I got all four things and they're all stuck together. And then market category is kind of the same. Like it's a little more esoteric, but if you think about it, the best market category you can choose is a category that kind of takes your best fit customers and sort of points them at your value. So now I'm in a dilemma. All the bits kind of relate to each other. I'm trying to figure out the best answer for all of them, but where's the starting point? If everything has a relationship to everything else, like where do I start? And for two years, I decided, well, this is why we don't know how to do positioning. This is why when I went to school, they didn't teach me a methodology. There's no good starting point. So what you actually have to do is pick an arbitrary starting point, which, you know, I always started with capabilities because that was easy. You know, we're experts on our own stuff work my way around the wheel of the other five things. And then I would get candidate positioning, like a thesis. And then I would take it out to the market. We'd test it with sales and marketing. And if it works, great, we run with it. If it doesn't, we throw it out and we go back and we try something else. And so I did that for years. And let me tell you, little grasshopper, you don't want to do this. <laughs> this was terrible. This was like the worst two years of my life. It was really bad. Like, And here's why. So, you know, I'd come in, like literally I would get hired as the VP marketing because I could talk intelligently about positioning stuff. And they'd say, great, we got a positioning problem. Come in here and fix it. And so I'd come in, we do this thing going around the wheel, figure out the five components. We get this candidate positioning and then we test it. And so one of two things happen. <laughs> if you test it and the test passes and it works, you're a hero. Everybody wants to give you a raise. Like April, you're amazing. Best thing we ever did was hire you. But if you take the candidate positioning, take it out to the market, test it, and it doesn't work, and you gotta go, now you got to go back to your boss and say, oh, yeah, you know, we ran that test. Didn't work out the way we thought it was going to work out. Uh, we're actually, you know, we, gotta, we need another three months to go test it again. This, my friends, is a very good way to get fired. <laughs> so I did this for like years. And it was bad. Like I, I always, I, every time I did one of these tests, I was always like, man, this better go good because if it doesn't, I'm in big trouble. And lots of times it didn't. And that was bad. And so anyways, I was, I was stuck there for years. And how I eventually got out of that mess was um, Clayton Christensen, to, just the short answer. So I got kind of into jobs theory and jobs to be done. So if you're not familiar with jobs theory, Clayton Christensen is sort of the father of that. Wrote a book called Competing Against Luck. The folks on the product management side of the house, they they use jobs theory that it's quite popular over there for folks when they're trying to figure out, you know, what is the job that a product does for a customer and therefore what features should we be building in the next version of this product to better do that job. 
And so I started thinking about, well, how does that relate to positioning? Like, should we actually be positioning around the job? And if so, where does it fit in my five components and how do we actually do this? And so if you're familiar with jobs theory at all, there's a very famous story called the milkshake story. And I'm going to butcher it for you right here. The jobs people will probably in the comments tell me I'm an idiot, but it, it, here's, here's my telling of the milkshake story. So very famous job story. So it, it, there's fast food company and they're trying to improve the milkshake. And so they look at who's buying milkshakes and what's going on with milkshakes. And they find there's this little spike in milkshake sales through the drive-thru in the morning. And they're like, well, what's up with that? <laughs> so they go and they interview these people that are buying milkshakes in the drive-thru. And they're like, why are you buying a milkshake? And, and they're talking about things like, well, you know, I, I'm hungry, but I also got a long commute and it's really boring. So I could buy an Egg McMuffin, but, you know, it's going to get crumbs all over me and I'm going to be a mess when I get to work, you know, or I could get a donut or something. But the problem with the donut, it's, you know, it's over in five seconds and I still got this long, boring drive. The great thing about the milkshake is, you know, no mess, sits in my cup holder, fills me up when I'm hungry, but it's also kind of entertaining. You know, it takes me a long time to get through the milkshake. So this is good on the long drive. So as a result, what they did was they made the milkshake, you know, thicker, and you know, made sure it fit in the cup holder and all that kind of stuff. When I heard that story, I had this little aha moment where I was like, oh, like what we really discovered in there from a positioning standpoint is what did we have to position against? Like you would have assumed that we had to position a milkshake against Coke, you know, like a drink, when in fact you had to position the milkshake against breakfast. I would never have thought, how do we position a milkshake against an Egg McMuffin? So the insight there that I got out of that was we actually have to start a positioning exercise by deeply understanding what the customer is comparing us to. Because if we don't understand that, then we don't understand how we win. So that's where I came up with this idea that if we start with competitive alternatives, this is way better. If we don't start with competitive alternatives, what we'll get is positioning that sounds good in the office, but it doesn't work out in the field because it, it actually doesn't differentiate us sufficiently against the thing that the customer is actually comparing us to. We actually have to do it like this. So we start with competitive alternatives. So if you didn't exist in the market, what would customers be doing? And that actually tells us a lot. And the job the customer is trying to do is a bit baked into that. So we start with that. We're like, if you didn't exist, what would a customer be doing? And then you say, okay, well, what have we got that the alternatives don't have? In the case of the milkshake, right? It's like no mess, sitting in the cup holder, like a bunch of stuff, right? Sits in the cup holder, all that kind of thing. And then, and then the next step is value. So customers don't actually care about the features. They care about what the features can do for them, like boredom relief <laughs> in this case. <laughs> but once we have the features, we can go down the feature and say, so what? You know, so we have advanced AI, whatever, whatever. So what? Why does the customer care? What is the value that this thing can, that this feature can deliver for the customer's business? So now I got value. Once I have value, then I can say, all right, I'm the only company in the world that can deliver this combination of this plus this plus this. What are the characteristics of a target account that make them really, really care a lot about the value that only we can deliver? So that gets me target customers. And then the last one's market category. The market category, you know, I got this value. I'm trying to 
position my stuff so that this value is sort of obvious to these people. So now I got market category. So that's how we actually have to do it. Once I cracked that, then everything became easier. So then I actually had a methodology where I could get a cross-functional team together and we could work through each of those steps and figure out what the ideal positioning was for any product. Okay. So now we got a methodology. Like now we got something we can use to actually do positioning. I can get the gang together and we can go step one, step two, step three, step four. We can do it. Now, here's the thing I discovered after that. Like, so we've now solved for the basic problem. Like, how do I do positioning? But let me tell you, like, there's a hundred ways to screw this up. Like, like a hundred ways. <laughs> like, like it is the methodology makes it possible to do. Does it make it easy? No, actually it doesn't. Like there's still a thousand ways to like get a terrible result, even if you're using this methodology. So my goal here is to get into that level of detail in the upcoming episodes where we're going to pick a particular set of things and go really deep on how do I fix this? What happens when I'm stuck in this particular situation? Some of the things I get a lot are, you know, can I just do this in marketing? Like, do I actually need a cross-functional team? People will come and ask me like, what if my boss doesn't want to do this? Or my boss thinks the positioning's great and I think it's terrible. What do we actually do about that? What do we have to do when we've got that positioning to make it real in the organization for the sales team? How do we translate it into messaging? How do we translate it into a sales pitch? How do we actually make it sing? Like having it intellectually is one thing, but making it work out in the world is a whole different thing. So these are the topics I want to cover in the upcoming episodes for this show. So I would love it if you folks could leave a comment or leave a review. This is all new for me. So I would like to hear some feedback from you folks. I think that would be great. Uh, the website is positioning.show and you can see a list of all the episodes there as they get rolling out. You can subscribe to the podcast, wherever it is that you like to get your podcasts. And we're going to do this weekly. So expect the next episode to come out in a week's time. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you next time.